Hello and welcome. Episode number 71 of the Metrospective. Pete McCarthy with Tim Britton. We've named it. Uh, we're up to 71. So for Tom Seaver's terrific 1971 season, he was robbed of a Cy Young looking back at the uh, the old numbers there. But uh, we'll... Uh, we have the, the, the great pleasure to be joined by Eno Saris, who does uh, tremendous baseball research, both uh, talking to players, looking into the numbers, analytics, you name it, uh, here at The Athletic. And, uh, Eno, first of all, how you doing? You're becoming a renaissance man, it sounds like, uh, making the use, best use of your time possible as we wait for baseball to begin again. Yeah, yeah. I've run uh, 140 miles so far this year, 145 after today. Um, I'm working my way up to a half marathon. I'm learning my, my Duolingo. I'm, uh, I, I started a, a site called supportbeer.com to help people, uh, uh, support brewers and, and, uh, bartenders and also order beer directly from different, uh, different breweries. So, you know, uh, when there is no baseball, you find the things to occupy your time, I guess. The running and beer, that goes hand in hand, though. I mean, that's a good combo because then you, you can gotta feel do better one. about what happens at night. You know, you have your AM exactly. habit, your PM habit. Yeah, you got to do them both. Otherwise, you're just going to get large. See, you're, you're thinking of supporting beer. I'm always thinking of how beer supports me during times <laughs> like this. That's, that's how I get through it. Just try to give back a little bit. <laughs> well, let's get into... Um, you know, some of the, the Mets topics here, and, and you've written about a, a number of Mets over the years, whether it be Michael Conforto, Brandon Nimmo, and, and people go back and, and see the full stories. I, I would say the biggest story for the Mets over these last few weeks, besides uh, the no baseball thing, uh, of course, Noah Syndergaard undergoing Tommy John at the same time as uh, Chris Sale. And it feels like those are two players that it's been talked about for a long time within the game. Oh, how long until they need Tommy John? And then once it happens, it's, see, I told you so from certain people. What do you make of that? Was it always a, a destiny of guys like Sale and Syndergaard to have to undergo this particular surgery? What's your view of it? You know, the part that I'm not so well-versed on is uh, what mechanical uh, foibles they might have that predicted this. I know that there is a certain sector of Twitter that seems to think they have got everything figured out. It's because he had the inverted W or he showed the ball to second base or whatever it was. Uh, so I don't, I don't know that mechanically uh, he was destined for this, but I, I know of the research when it comes to the kind of stress that you can measure directly on the elbow. Uh, there's a sleeve called the modus sleeve. And you can wear the modus sleeve and it can actually it can actually tell you how much stress you're putting on the elbow in Newton meters. And when they when they, you know, at driveline baseball, they did a study where they wore the the modus sleeve and they just tried it with different things. It was they tried to see the effect of velocity, um, if sliders stress your elbow more, all the stuff that we kind of wanted to know. And just in terms of direct stress on the elbow, what they found was the number one stressor on the elbow was velocity. Um, so in that case, Thor, as one of the top three guys when it comes to velocity, was was stressing his arm out. And the number two thing, or or uh, sort of asterisk to that, was that if you correct for velocity, sliders are stressful on the elbow. Uh, so basically, saying sliders overall looked like they were less stressful than than fastballs, but if you kind of if you threw a 94 mile an hour slider, in other words, it's very stressful on the elbow. So I'm beginning, I used to love Dan Morthen um, and the sliders that he taught. Uh, Jake, he taught Jake, he taught Familia, he taught uh, uh, Wheeler, 
he taught this version of a slider that's kind of like a hard, hard cutter power slider type thing. But if you look up and down at the people who throw it, um, the health outcomes haven't been great. How nerve? You know, I, I was reading a story about kind of th that idea that throwing 98 with your fastball and throwing 93 with your slider is kind of an ingredient for this to happen. Uh, the issue for the Mets is like Jacob Degrom also does that. Uh, yeah. Are are the war? You know, he's a guy who already had Tommy John uh, earlier in his career. I think it was 2011. Uh, when he was in the minor leagues, like how concerning is that same blueprint for him as he ages over the next couple of years? Another way that you can toggle the stress thing, and this comes from Glenn Fleisick, who runs ASMI. Um, he says that like, you know, pitching further away from your maximum is healthier. So even if you throw 95, but your maximum is 100, somebody else is throwing 95 and their maximum is 97, that's different amounts of stress. So Jake could toggle uh, how close he sits to his maximum. Um, there's, and then there's other things that we're getting better at in terms of measuring fatigue. Um, so I would hope that the Mets who I think are improving in this regard and the new regime has an ear out for best practices in terms of, um, you know, the types of pitching coaches, the types of pitching development, hitting development they want to do. Um, I don't know that they've enacted all those changes yet, but if you are sort of a forward thinking, progressive pitching organization, uh, you can be really minute in terms of workload um, and basically uh, tell Jake, who throws twice between starts, which is very rare, uh, you could tell him, skip one of those this week. Skip both of those. Let's skip a start this week um, and just really be aggressive in managing his workload and try to stay up on top of that. But th it is weird how Jake has already had a Tommy John surgery and his velocity keeps going up every year. Those are two weird things. And he does throw the hard slider like Thor did. Well, it seems like some of the trend in the game is to use more pitchers per game, right, for shorter stints. That way they can go 100%. And now I don't know if the guys are necessarily taught more often to go max effort, but it's certainly more than it was, say, 30, mm -hmm. 40 years ago where guys would coast until they got into a, a tougher situation, try to rack up the innings. Do you Is that a flawed philosophy, perhaps, if, if it's going to be about the effort that can – potentially lead to injury? I I think it's a really important question because I was looking at old pitching years for this fantasy project I was doing, and it was funny to me that I could get more strikeouts in, in bulk form uh, from past seasons than I could from, from recent seasons when the strikeout rate has been at its highest because pitchers nowadays throw like 150 innings mm -hmm. and get, you know, 175 strikeouts for their for their for their troubles, whereas back in the day, they would throw 250 innings and get 200 strikeouts. You know? <laughs> um, so there is something that we've tried to, we've tried to, but you know, this is all in the name of efficiency. So basically, if you have 27 outs on the hitting side, you want somebody to be going for a homer on every single one. And you want to spend every out in effort of a homer because the homer is the best thing. And on the pitching side, if you need to get 27 outs, the best way to get it is a strikeout because if you put a, let a, allow a ball in play, uh, you know there's, there's all sorts of chances it could be a hit, it could be anything. So, uh, so that efficiency has led to the game that we have today, um, and because the supply of of talent seems to be fairly rich, I think teams. I don't know if they said so out loud, but teams are kind of like, well, we can get another pitcher. What we want is 
110% out of every one guy that's in there for now. And if they get hurt, we'll just bring another guy in. You wrote back in March, I think late March, about the, the fear that some people have about an injury spike for pitchers if and when baseball comes back this year. Just how, how, how much can baseball try to prevent something like that happening? Because pitchers are, are really more so than anyone in limbo right now, not knowing how much to, to ramp down, how much to stay active with their arms, and, and how to stay prepared if and when a season comes along. You know, I've had a lot of people contact me since that piece, and I've had a sort of second piece that came out trying to detail some of the things they can do. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to get in that second piece was that I it's had someone point out to me, you know, I don't think we can tell pitchers what to do right now. He says, the liability is here. Let's say I tell a pitcher, we want you to do this throwing program, this, this, and that. And some part of it, the pitcher thinks, means that they have to go into a gym or they have to go somewhere or they have to throw to a catcher. They have to interact with somebody. That pitcher gets the coronavirus. Is the team now liable? Um, so... So I think these the, like teams are kind of dancing around it and being like, this is like basically doing a ton of disclaimers. It's all voluntary. You can just do what you can do. Your health is number one. We're not telling you what to do. If you can do anything, here's a program. Um, and the better teams have like software programs where uh, a pitcher can log, you know, throws and maybe some uh, some metric for how hard they threw um, and how many breaking balls they threw, that sort of stuff. They can kind of have some sort of throwing program, but the best they can do is probably maintain. Um, and they were probably all at about four innings capacity. The starters were, if they come back and say, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do spring training for a week," and we jump in, that's that's too little. Uh, you know, we the, then the pitchers won't be stretched out. You know, we talked with uh, Jerry Blevins a few episodes ago, and he was saying he's throwing against a wall outside the the place he's renting in Arizona. Uh, we've seen Marcus Stroman throwing BP on a pier and having someone catching on the other end. Have you been <laughs> able to to talk to some pitchers and get some ideas of, of what creative ways these guys are coming up with to try to, to stay <laughs> yeah. up? Jared Hughes is throwing to an inflatable Rod Barajas, I last I checked. Um, yeah, we got to What, what does things. an inflatable Barajas look like? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I talked to Mitch Hanniger recently, and he was actually jealous of pitchers because he said, you know, you can get close to live game conditions with a wall. Um, all you got to do is, you know, try to throw hard against it. He said, no matter what type of machine I have, there's no way I can track the arm the track, the release, get ready. He says that he thought hitter obliques were going to be at risk when they came back because they just weren't at uh, sort of peak uh, reaction. They weren't doing the, they weren't getting those reads off of pitchers. So I think it's all going to be really dicey. I think one of the things they can do is as much spring training as possible, uh, which you know the word possible and as much that there's carrying a lot of weight water there because a lot of weight there because how do the you know what do the team the way the teams they want to get out there they want to get they want to you know get the tv contracts they want to get as many games as possible for the tv contract money they want to the players want to get out there and earn money so um you know the spring training will kind of be seen as an impediment to some but they have to do at least two weeks and the other thing i would do that i've heard some of is uh up the roster construction so that Maybe for this year, it's 30-man rosters or something um, because you're going to need place for for the Mets. I think uh, the most important people will be uh, the person on the staff might be someone like Steven Gonzalez, 
um, who, and I think, uh, is that Erasmo Ramirez that's uh, that's on that roster too? Yes. The type yeah. of guys that that would be six starters, uh, they're going to come in now in the fifth, in the fourth and fifth inning at the beginning uh, when the stars aren't stretched out and they're going to vulture a lot of wins. So, and they're going to come in and, and, and keep the staff glued together. So I'm running the OOTP outside of the park Mets for, um, for Brad Johnson's crew. I know that we're also doing one, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, in my in my version of the sim, Gonzalez has like four wins and like a two five ERA uh, in like seven innings. Um, so it, it's just worked out that way in the sim. But um, you know that's what's going to be really important for teams is to have some depth in the pitching staff, and that's not actually maybe the number one thing that the Mets are known for. Yeah, and it's certainly an area that took a hit with the the Syndergaard injury. You know, when when Michael mm-hmm. Waka is that number six, it looks a little bit better. Uh, let, let's talk about that back half of the rotation. Uh, you know, you know, kind of what you have in Degrom. You've got an idea of it with Stroman and Mats. Porcello and Waka are guys they brought in uh, on back to back days in December, coming off down seasons, but who have been good before that. Uh, what did you think of those two signings? Where do you think those guys? fit and what 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 can they be for the Mets in 2020 you know I think they represent a an underrated resource or not a resource that's uh demanded on the open market which is a kind of a back-end starter right I mean uh those starters get less and less money on the on the on the market every year uh when teams think they can just develop a guy to take that place uh but that hasn't happened in the in the Mets pitching development for a little bit um, and so I think that they were a good fit for them. Even if they only pitch to kind of a four or five ERA and chew up innings, that's, that's going to be important uh, to have them around. And what I like about uh, getting guys like Waka and Porcello in particular is that we're coming in now uh, for the Mets with a, a new pitching uh, coach in Jeremy Hefner. And it's going to be a new approach in general. And what I like about those veterans is they come with a lot of pitches. Not every pitch is amazing. But they come with a lot of pitches, and basically the raw stuff of pitching. Yes, it's it's spin and velocity, but often it's how many ship, how many pitches can you shape, you know? Um, and then you know, can we toggle your sequencing, or can we toggle your location strategy with one of those pitches, or can we just move the grip slightly and get a little bit different action out of one of those pitches? So there is some clay here. I think people think of these guys as having no upside, but they've all had, you know, they both had good seasons in their past and just a slight toggle for Waka. It's the breaking balls. If you can find the, the right cutter or curve combo to go with this changeup, uh, that's when he'll have a good year. And, uh, for Porcello, I think it's actually kind of putting all the pitches together because he has so many and he's been so many different guys. He's been a sinker slider guy. He's been a fastball curve guy. If he can find the right combinations to keep people on their back foot, uh, I think he can be good again. How about at the top of the rotation? You ranked the top 178 starting pitchers for the Athletic uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Was it difficult for you to put Jacob DeGrom ahead of Garrett Cole? By the way, that's the right answer. But was it difficult to to end up there? That's been you know one of those uh, talk radio arguments in New York. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things is uh, that was a fantasy uh, ranking. So for me, Cole going into uh, that stadium. I was looking back at like historic pitching performances from Yankee starters and uh, they don't have any of that, like, uh, you know, those late nineties Pedro seasons, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or like even a season like DeGrom's put up recently. 
Um, so I think that stadium is just a tough place to live, and he's he's going to be excellent. He's a top two pitcher in the big leagues, but in terms of like the things that you need for fans in terms of ERA and stuff like that, um, I, I think Cole might be the best pitcher in the league. You know, if we just boil everything down, but uh, Degrom in that stadium against NL lineups and. One of the things that I like about DeGrom going in that Cole doesn't necessarily have is that DeGrom is like top three. I have these two metrics, stuff and command. And stuff comes from driveline baseball and command comes from Stats Inc. And they try to measure basically stuff is movement and velocity, how good your stuff is. And, and command is just how good you can place pitches, uh, how well you can place pitches where you want them. And DeGrom is top three in both. So... Cole doesn't have that. Uh, very few people will have that. Verlander is, is close. So DeGrom is more like a young Verlander to me. Yeah, when we talked to Blevins, we talked about kind of just the joy of watching DeGrom as a pitcher. I, I don't know how mm-hmm. often you get to see him pitch, but but what do you appreciate most about watching him on a, a when, when you do get a chance to? I like that he has four plus pitches and he can do with those pitches what he likes. Um, I like to see how he sets people up and he goes back and forth. And uh, it's never, it never seems to be like a carbon copy thing where he's like, like he establishes with a fastball, then he goes to the slider, then he breaks out the other two. It's more, um, you know, a, a push and pull with all of his four pitches. I, I really enjoy watching him. And in terms of fastball command, um, there's not, not too many that are up there with him. Now let's uh, jump over to the position player side. And, and one player that's going to be really interesting for the Mets this year is J.D. Davis, of course, had a, a breakout season last year. But you, you look at some of the numbers, he batted over 300, but also uh, had a batting average on balls in play that was over 350, and he's not exactly Juan Pierre. He's not the kind of guy that you would expect uh, to put up that kind of number if I'm using it correctly. You know, What do you make about J.D. Davis and what kind of hitter he could be going forward? Dude is a professional hitter. And I mean, that's a funny thing to say about these. They're all professional hitters, <laughs> even the pitchers. Um, but he he's sort of a man without a position. I, I I don't think that he's as, you know, I remember when uh, Daniel Murphy was playing in the outfield. Did you remember that? We, we all remember that, that brief <laughs> experiment. <laughs> I don't think it's as bad with J.D. Davis out there. Um, no. But... You know, I don't think he's necessarily a very good defender at third or in left field. Um, and I think that's probably why he was available uh, for what he was available for. But, you know, if we're headed towards a universal DH, uh, he's he's a bat you want on your team. He's uh, top 10% of the league in terms of exit velocity, and he's really good at, at barreling the ball. Uh, he's more like top 15, 20% there. Um, he had a a 468 slugging last year by Statcast, he should have had a 548 slugging. Um, there was a, something weird that happened with the uh, um, with the home park last year. Um, I think you've written about it, Tim. Yeah, just just the way exit velocity is is kind of held down in in City Field, and and last year they actually performed better there. Davis had as good a home season as they've had in that park. Yeah, uh, but it's still not what the rest of the league is at uh in, yeah. in terms of, of balls flying out yeah so there's something weird going on there i've heard uh, some stuff about um how they stored the balls and they've improved how they store the balls 
Um, but nobody, nobody wanted to go on record. So <laughs> I, I know uh, that feeling well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, he just hits the ball really well. And I like the, really the improvement that he's made with the strikeout rate too, just to see a guy improve his strikeout rate while hitting the ball harder. Uh, it's all come together. And if, if it were my team, he'd be an everyday starter somewhere. But, you know, one of the things that's kind of funny about this team is, um, they have a bunch of good bats, you know. They don't all fit in the right defensive positions, uh, but they they have good bats on this team. Yeah, well, one of the guys I think that fans are waiting for a maybe breakout from is Ahmed Rosario at short. And the the second half of last season, really the last four months he had last year, he looked a lot more comfortable at the plate. Stopped chasing sliders outside of the zone quite as much. What's you know this is a guy who was a top five prospect in the game not that long ago. Is that ceiling still attainable for him? Has it come down a little? Where do you see him fitting in? Uh, not just in 2020, but maybe over the next few years. Well, the first couple of years he was in the big leagues, uh, he hit the ball really softly, and I just I didn't think I didn't think there was uh, going to be much there with the bat. I thought that um, like basically his sophomore his sophomore year, the 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 first full year. After that, I thought, okay, he's going to be kind of a stick-only guy. Um, and I revised my ceiling back then to uh, something like Elvis Andrews. I I think I might stick with that, even though last year Rosario did get better. He hit the ball around league average, a little bit better than league average. He's not barreling it, but he's hitting the ball a little bit harder. Uh, you're right that his plate discipline has gotten better. Um and, and, and when I say Elvis Andrews, I think that's a, a complicated one because some people might say, is that it after all the hype that Ahmed Rosario came up with? Uh, but on the other hand, um, Elvis Andrews uh, has been a productive major leaguer, uh, league average in, you know, for like almost 10 big league seasons. So uh, with a couple of seasons on his record that were pretty standout in terms of like near, near, um, near all-star status. Uh, so I, I think uh, maybe uh, Elvis Andrews maybe a little bit better if he continues to improve. It's kind of hard to see like you see incremental improvement, and so you think, oh, it's gonna he's gonna take another step, but that's not always how it works. Sometimes they just take a couple steps and that's it. Well, when you get the Francisco Lindor comparisons when you're coming up, and then it ends up at uh, Elvis Andrews, you know, I think that's where <laughs> the fans are. Okay, what what exactly happened here? But still, you know, plenty of time. And as you mentioned, I mean, Elvis Andrews had a carved out a nice career for himself. There's little doubt about that. Um, yeah, how about someone like Michael Conforto? I, I think you've written extensively about Conforto in the past, and we've talked about him on the podcast and have kind of. Uh, compared him with Christian Yelich, that oh, he could be the guy that that makes that kind of jump, maybe and maybe not quite to Yelich's level, but it seems like he has that kind of ability to hit to all fields and have some power as well. Do you think we ever see Conforto reach an, an MVP caliber level? I do, I do. Um, one of the things that's really interesting for me about him is how much he goes to the opposite field, um, and some of his really hardest hit his hardest hit ball, some of them are to the opposite field. The problem is that uh, hitting to the opposite field, hitting it hard and hitting it in the air to the opposite field, you actually, that's leads to less good outcomes as pulling the ball in the air. Um, usually just, I think you have more slice on the ball. There's, and that slice takes, uh, takes momentum away from going out basically and go sideways, you know? 
Um, so there's something with to do with physics where an opposite field uh, hit is 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 less than ideal. However, uh, being able to go to the opposite field means you can cover more of the plate. So it makes you harder to be pitched to. So I think that fits with what I know of Conforto is that like I don't think there's an obvious he doesn't have a hole. There's not a place that everyone's attacked forever. You know, he can turn on the inside pitch and he can go the other way with the outside pitch. And I think that some, one year that those two skills are going to he's going to put it put it together the right way where he hits like 40 homers and he hits, you know, but he also hits like 290. I, I think he can do both those things because it's just a question of like doing the right thing with the right pitch at the right time. I mean, I think he's got the skills to do that. When you look at this Mets team overall, then you've talked about kind of the the surplus of, of some interesting young bats that they have. Uh, you've got a guy in DeGrom at the top of that rotation, although the, the depth isn't isn't what it what they wanted it to be coming into spring. Uh, what do you see overall? Is this, I mean, do you look at them as a team that can seriously challenge in the NL East, you know, be a, one of those contenders for a wild card spot in the National League? Do you think they're right there as a potential, you know, 90 win team, 90 wins in quotes, depending on how many games we play? Uh, right, or, or do you think they're still a, a step or two away from that? Yeah, you know, with Thor, I definitely, with with Syndergaard, I definitely thought they had a great chance. Um, they they sometimes they projected as a as like a top sort of seven, top six, seven team in the big leagues. And with him gone, they are now uh, by Fangraphs at least three, six, nine, tenth in the big leagues. That's definitely in it for a wild card, and. The interesting thing about a short season is that the variance jumps. So, you know, if you had a three-game season, anybody could win, right? If you have a 300-game season, probably only the best teams uh, will make it to the top. So we're going to be somewhere in between those two. And the shorter the season is, the more uh, variance there is, the more it it's uh, advantageous, actually, to be in the middle there. So, you know, the Mets... Um, and uh, teams like the Phillies, Angels, White Sox, Padres, Blue Jays, all of them saw their likelihood uh, of making the playoffs increase uh, as the season gets shorter. The problem is with the other teams, they have youth that's ready to come. So if these injuries do hit like I think they will, uh, teams like the Padres and White Sox have uh, just you know tons of prospects ready to go, and uh, they can just keep plugging them in. Whereas the Mets uh, seem to be lacking in that uh, regard. So there's some push and pull there. Basically, what I'm saying is uh, I think they're in it for the wild card. I just um, I, I think I like them. There's chances about the same, a little bit less maybe with the, with the short season and definitely less with, with Syndergaard gone. Well, how are your out-of-the-park baseball Mets doing? I mean, and that might be uh, the, where we can glean some hope unless Steven Gonsalves really is the key to your staff. What are they? What are they in yours, Tim? What are they in, in the athletics? Uh, we're we're just seven and eleven. It's it's been a tough slog Ooh. so far. So uh, I don't know. Yeah. If, you know, Tim's got to give a good speech. A <laughs> we're doing a little bit better on uh, in the the other one. Um, I think we are nine and seven or something after the last one, um, and we are one game out of the wild card, and uh, two or three games out of the division lead. So. Um, I think we're kind of seeing both ends of how this can happen. I think you need to uh, up your hook on, on Waka and Porcello so they get pulled out of the games earlier. 
and uh, and put Gonzalez in as the uh, as the main reliever, middle reliever there. That's been working. Yeah, I'll me. have to call him up. Clearly, that's that's the first that's the thing I'm going to do the minute we hang up on this podcast. <laughs> you know, oh yeah, you need him up, dude. And the other thing, I traded for Jose Urena. Um, mm-hmm. It it took uh, Shervain Newton, uh, and they took some money off it because we we don't have that much money. I'm, I think you've seen <laughs> right. Um, and uh, the other thing I'm doing, I think now, is putting an opener on Michael Walker. Okay. Yeah, so like I, I think I'm Urania. Urania was a guy that I thought I was. I was actually surprised the Marlins. I thought they might non-tender him in the offseason, uh, and I thought was a guy who could be interesting for the Mets as as kind of a depth guy. So that's uh, that's an interesting direction to go in that I should probably explore. Yeah. So yeah, Urania, and and then I hope on the opener with, with Walker because Walker's struggling a little bit for for in the sim. So. But you know, yeah, I think it's a fun team, man. It's a it's a tough team to to follow sometimes as a fan. I got to New York in uh, I moved to New York in 2002, I think, um, and uh, chose the Mets uh, since I was I, I moved a lot in my life and I I chose the Mets as a as a fan because I was never going to be a Yankees fan, and um, so I went up and down with them through that period and that was a lot of fun, but uh, a fair amount of heartbreak for. For being such a recent fan, you know, <laughs> right? Oh, oh two the weren't the best day, best of days. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, the the one other thing I, w- I wanted to ask you is, you wrote about you ranked kind of the beer availability and and high end choices at stadiums. You had City Field more or less in the middle of the pack. I think you had them fourteenth, uh, but with good top end beers. How how do you how much have you enjoyed as a baseball fan? Kind of the way beer availability at stadiums has changed. Uh, in the last 10 years or so, uh, and how does City Field kind of match up uh, around the league and all the stadiums you have been to now? Yeah, it's totally improved. It's uh, it, It's been kind of amazing. I remember um, thinking that having Sierra Nevada at a, a San Francisco game was was a big deal. And then I remember the first time I went to, to Petco in San Diego, I was like, whoa, like, can't believe this. And then I went and saw a game at, with the White Sox uh, at the cell and was and was like wow okay this is getting everywhere and, and White Sox like doubled their craft beer leadership their, their craft beer availability and so it was like I've been really impressed I think most teams I think most teams have like the the, the replacement level has come pretty far up um, even the worst parks have I mean other than Yankee Stadium and Toronto uh, most parks have some craft beer around um, the one thing that starts separating the parks near the top when I did those rankings though and that's what what hurt the Mets the most is that a lot of places have like one or two places where you can get good craft beer. But if you're asking around at the stadium, the people don't know where it is. There's no real obvious plan or signage. Uh, there's no real strategy, you would say. It's just like, let's have a couple craft beers so we can say we have a couple of craft beers. There's definitely stadiums like that. I wouldn't say the Mets are necessarily like that, but they have a lot of good beers and they have a partnership with McKellar. And like, there's good beers at, at, at the stadium. It's just that from whoever I talk to in my own experience, we don't know where it is. So you kind of, you maybe learn, like maybe someone is listening to this and saying, ah, there's great beer there. Well, yeah, maybe you go there a lot and you know where it is, but try to imagine, you know, landing there and just not knowing where it was and and trying to decipher and figure it out. So, um, you know, places like Petco, it's like very obvious that behind home plate is this huge craft beer place. And then, a lot of good signage around and then everybody at the park knows exactly where where the beer is so 
um, that's that was a kind of the thing I discovered while I was doing that. That was interesting to me. And I know you're pushing to support local craft beer. Is there one in Queens or uh, New York City off the top of your head that you would recommend for uh, for people to as they're hunkering down these days? I'm a big fan of Threes uh, Brewery in Brooklyn, um, and uh, uh, they're delivering. Uh, I see from my site supportbeer.com. Um, other half is uh, also delivering. And then Queens, I believe, single cut uh, mm-hmm. is a yeah. They're, I like. they're delivering now. Yeah, they're delivering now. So there you go. That's uh, yep. They're delivering. So and they have takeout. So uh, th- those are three of my favorite uh, breweries in the city. Uh, and that's, I mean, <laughs> honestly, it's like the one fun thing that has come out of this is now you can get delivery mm-hmm. beer straight from the breweries. <laughs> there you go. The future has arrived and uh, it's not everything we dreamed of, but uh, at least it no, is. find, find the silver linings that you can uh, here and there. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate you coming on and we recommend everybody, you know, check out, Eno's work, uh, here at the athletic. And also if you're a fantasy baseball player, uh, check out the rates and barrels podcast as well. But, uh, Eno, thank you so much uh, for your time. We really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm going to do uh, some sort of grocery store beer bracket coming up where, where people get to vote for their favorite grocery store beer. So you got to support local, but I know a lot of people are, have to have to get it at the grocery store right now because times are tough. But Rolling uh, Rock for the win. Rolling Rock. Oh, my God. I got to get that in the bracket. Okay. That's <laughs> All right. That's going in. All right. We look forward to that, Eno. Thank you. Thanks, thanks so much, Eno. Me. Always great baseball insights uh, from Eno. And, and again, we appreciate him joining us here on the podcast. We back at you on Friday morning, episode number 72. And Tim Britton, it is time for this part of the show, which has become far more difficult than it was early on, trying to figure out who wore number 72 at the Mets and was good enough to have a podcast named after them. So uh, we've got Carlos Torres, Philip Evans, Jack Reinheimer, and Steven Nagosik. Those are the four that have worn number 72. Yeah, so I'm looking at the 72 Mets page because I feel like that might be more fun <laughs> than that. Quartet. I think Torres is the one who stands out there, but uh, I think, you know, I, I, one, you know, we talk a lot about the Mets' rich pitching history. Uh, and, and clearly, you know, you think of Seaver and Kuzman and Gooden, now, now DeGrom. Uh, one guy that I think gets overlooked a lot in that conversation uh, and, and who won Rookie of the Year in 1972 with an excellent season uh, is John Matlack, uh, mm. a guy who made a couple of different All-Star games. I believe was co-MVP of an All-Star game with Bill Madlock, which uh, is one of my favorite just weird things in baseball history. Uh you know, was it was an integral part of that '73 team uh, that that went that won the pennant. Uh, so I, I think John Matlack is the guy to go with here. He uh, was kind of on the Degrom track. It looks like 82 and 81, despite a 3.03 ERA. It's not right. Right, and I mean, like it's you know he went 14 and 16 with a 3.20 in '73. That's I mean that's how a team go, goes 82 and 79. Uh, so a, a guy who was really uh, an integral part of those teams. Um, you know, you, we always wonder why the Mets didn't win another one with the, the that young core that they had in 69. Mm. Uh, and you forget that a guy like this came along a couple years after and, and buttressed that pitching staff even more. Uh, and they just came one game shy in 73. 
John Matlack, uh, that episode coming up again uh, for you on Friday morning. Our thanks once again to Eno Saris for joining us on the show. Tim Britton, always a pleasure, my friend. Adios, Pete.